Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS on air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, welcome to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernio. She's a nationally known gerontologist, a member of the board of the National Council on Aging, where she is the past president, serves as executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, and there aren't a lot of people as knowledgeable as she is about Growing old in America today. Well, there you have it. (laughs) In a nutshell. uh, Old are us. (laughs) I like that. How does that work at cocktail parties? (laughs) You know, it's still a conversation killer. So far, I have yet to find the excited recipient of hearing I am a gerontologist. (laughs) We're all getting older, you think? Hope springs eternal, though. (laughs) Exactly. Now, speaking of hope springing eternal, uh, you have uncovered... The Common Causes of Depression. Well, you know, it's a cause of depression. And one of the things we've heard so much in the news about um, has been sort of depression and suicide. Um, I know that so many of us uh, have been saddened to hear of the loss of Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade and suicide. And I saw this note about medications and most of us as caregivers are taking care of someone who takes a lot of medications. It's not unusual for an older person to be on as many as 12 or 13 medications. I think the average is around seven. Um, but even younger people with chronic conditions are on medications. So I, it's important to know that about um, 37% of people are taking medications that it, with a side effect is depression. Wow. Which is fairly high, and, and that that goes up if you're taking multiple medications and the side effect is depression on each of them. So if you're on, like, beta blockers and hormonal drugs, um, antidepressants, analgesics, I mean, it's just there's there's a, a, a lot going on. And so I think it's important, you know, we, we get the medications and we get three pages of scary fine print. And I know my doctor always says, oh, don't don't read any of that. I you, always read you, it. You'll be afraid. You'll be afraid. And that's true. That's <laughs> to, true. To take it. But um, if you or your loved one is prone to depression anyway, or if you suspect someone is becoming depressed after starting a medication, if their mood changes anytime you think depression is a problem, you should mention that to your primary care doctor. You should absolutely mention it. Or talk to your pharmacist. That's a great place. I have a wonderful pharmacist. She's also in my Zumba class, so I get to cheat <laughs> sometimes. Um, and I, and I, you know, and just ask them, hey, I, you know, my loved one's taking this medication or I'm taking this. You know, is depression a side effect? Should, you know, was, was that one of the more well-known? Because some of the stuff in the fine print happens to one in a gazillion. But if 30% of the people taking this medication get depression, that's a little bit different. So you just snuck something in that I hope folks understand. You actually can talk while you're doing Zumba. Um, Most folks can't even get their breath. Well, it's in between songs. You wouldn't Uh, want to interrupt a really good dance number talking pharmacy. Next up, and this is the reason I put off my knee surgery for three years, memory loss as a result of surgery. And I know folks who actually 
suffered memory loss, in one case, continual. Well, you and I have had this conversation over the years. We have. Um, Post-operative cognitive dysfunction, POCD. And and what we have learned, you and I, anecdotally and personally, because the one time I did have general anesthesia, uh, and in younger years, we're, we're talking in my 40s, um, I had memory loss for a number of months. It was months before I felt normal again. Wow. And I ran an Alzheimer's program uh, in Florida, and there was a gentleman there who had had a heart procedure. And he had severe cognitive impairment, um, not from the anesthesia perhaps, but as a result of having a very long Surgery. So when I saw this article, What We Know and Don't Know About Memory Loss After Surgery, this was from Kaiser Health News, I went, aha. Uh, Because basically what they're saying is it's not that unusual, especially for people 65 and older, to have some sort of memory loss or cognitive problems after um, having anesthesia. Interesting. Of all the disclaimers I had to sign off on before surgery, that, that was not that one. That was not one of them. But listen to this. So Duke University did a study um, of people, of older persons that had heart bypass surgery. 36% were having some memory or cognitive decline after six weeks. After five years, 42% still had some cognitive decline. It's a good time for me to mention that we'll be talking with Dr. Sudha Shashadri in just a few minutes, who is at uh, UT Health the uh, uh, Glenn Biggs Institute for Alzheimer's and Neurodegenerative Disease. She is one of the nation's leading experts on Alzheimer's. Yes, a researcher just like these people who, right. who are studying um, you know, cognitive decline. And, and there was another Duke study that looked at not heart surgery, which would, people were like, okay, that's pretty a long surgery. It's very invasive. And they often put you on a heart-lung machine. Right. Then they looked at knee and hip replacements, Ron. Thank you. So 59% had cognitive dysfunction immediately after the surgery, 34% at three months, and 42% at two years. Wow. And and what Kaiser News says at the end of this article is that this is not something people tell you is a risk going into surgery. Correct. They don't say it. And so sort of the moral of the story is um, if you or a loved one is going to be – and they're not saying – they're not sure it's the anesthesia. They're saying it may be the oxygen not going to the brain. It's not the medication that puts you to sleep. It's the oxygen not going to the brain. Um, but, um, you know, it is a safety issue, and if you have concerns, um, you know, you should be told that older people uh, have a, an increased risk of having some cognitive decline from surgery. A lot of times it does come back. You know, it took my uncle about a year before wow. he was normal, but he did come back to normal, but it was about a year. And so this is a conversation Maybe we need to have a little more often in the hospitals when we're looking at surgery and, and, and anesthesia. Now, if you just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM. The Answer, I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernio, our co-host. And we'll be talking with Dr. Asuda Shashadri in just a few minutes. She is a nationally recognized expert on the causes of and down the road, perhaps, prevention and treatment for Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. Uh, the, uh, the question of memory loss after surgery is really a troubling one. 
Uh, so I'm going to go on to something yes, else. Let's do something lighter. I'm going to go to something else. And this is something uh, former Governor Rick Perry understood. Do glasses make me smarter or just look smarter? So um, I loved just this question um, from the big think. Uh, and it, people, so, of course, people will say, do glasses make you smarter? So what did somebody do? The researchers did a study. at the unit did a study. <laughs> University of Edinburgh looked at data of 300,000 people. That's a big study. It's a big number. A big study to look at if there, is there a link between general cognitive function and poor eyesight. And so for those of us who have been wearing glasses since the age of nine, I am happy to report <laughs> that the study found that, that, that there is a correlation that people who wear glasses um, or, or people, of, people of higher intelligence were 28% more likely to wear glasses. Wow. So there is a correlation. No, I, I too wore glasses from an early age. But I had LASIK surgery correcting my vision. Do I then lose those yeah, smarts? I think you've lost your. I think you've lost your edge. So they also found that if you pretend to be smart wearing glasses, that you don't really need the glasses, you have good eyesight. That um, that actually is bad for your self perception, and you're going to be shaming yourself by <laughs> pretending <laughs> to be smart. Um, so you know, I'm just happy to say that if you're wearing glasses, wear them proudly. It's not a guarantee, but perhaps you do have, you do, you are smart. You don't just look smart. Well, I'm glad somebody studied that. We are about out of time, but we have time real quick. Fitness, never too late. Fitness is never too late. Um, this comes from the Harvard Medical School, and who doesn't trust the Harvard Medical of School? Uh, in that middle-aged women who were really, really fit, they did a study with, these are, you know, 40 and over, uh, and those who were really fit were 88% less likely to develop dementia in later life. They followed these women over um, a course of years, about 200 of them, uh, and they didn't get dementia as much. Wow. So Dr. Shashadri is coming soon, and we can talk to her about what we might be doing to prevent dementia. But here it is. It's saying exercise, uh, particularly throughout your middle years, uh, when a lot of us stop exercising, is very important. We should ask her about peanut butter, too. We should do that as if well. If you smell peanut butter. You know, this is we, How many times do we get a real Alzheimer's expert at exactly. our fingertips? It's very exciting. We're going to get the answer to that one as well coming up in just a minute or two. And you can answer this one in, in short order. Long or short workouts, what makes the difference? Well, I read this, and this is a very short article also from Harvard Medical School. And what they're saying is is you can have these short workouts, right, just a couple of minutes throughout your day. But if you want to cut, decrease your, um, your chance of dying early by uh, 78%, almost 80%, you need 100 minutes of exercise per day. So we've been reading all about these short workouts and how they're fine, but they're saying, yeah, they, that's great. But, you know, if you really, really, really want to get the most benefit, all of those need to add up to 100 minutes. And that It's almost of, two hours. That's, that was, I thought that was a lot. I'm going to run around a lot of stairs. But don't, don't let that. Don't let that stop you because the biggest bang for the buck, as we've mentioned before in this article mentions, is 20 minutes of exercise or less daily, getting, which means couch potato to doing something. For right. 20 minutes a day, right. walking, mailbox, parking far away, whatever it is, 
that's going to be, you know, get you right off of the bottom of the barrel in terms of longevity. I got very frustrated the other day. My cable remote wouldn't turn on my cable box, and I walked up to it. Turned it on. There's a button on the front. I didn't know that. You never tried it. It was like brand new. It was shiny, right? Yeah, it was wh- shiny, brand new. <laughs> Why would you try it? But I got a little exercise doing that. That's so wonderful. I'm very happy <laughs> Coming for up you. next, Dr. Shashadri right here on Caregiver SOS On Air with Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel. You hear us at 930 AM, The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. Well, thank you so much for sticking with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, and we have been promising a very special guest, and she is with us on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline, Dr. Suda Shishadri, and we're delighted to have her with us. She's the founding director of the UT Health Science, uh, San Antonio's Glenn Biggs Institute for Alzheimer's and Neurogenerative Diseases. Neurogenerative diseases. Let's let her. I'm never going to get that right. Let's let her say that, Ron. Yeah, she may be diagnosing me as we talk. And Dr. (laughs) Shashadri, thank you so much for coming on. Good afternoon, Ron. Good afternoon, Carol. Thank you so much for having me. So it is delighted to be on. Neurodegenerative. Got it. He goes before the G. Thank you. Okay. And have you diagnosed me as yet? No, no, not at all. <laughs> not um, yet. <laughs> so neurodegenerative is really a broad term for things including Parkinson's and ALS as well as Alzheimer's and other dementias. Now, you've been working uh, for some time in this area uh, trying to uh, understand what it is that drives Alzheimer's, what it is that drives all kinds of uh, diseases. And if you don't mind... Uh, let me give a little more background uh, so folks who are listening can have an understanding of who we are talking to. You served as a professor of neurology and attending neurologist at Boston University School of Medicine, completed your residency and served as chief resident in neurology there, earned your medical degree from the All India Institute of Medical Sciences in New Delhi, India, a senior investigator for the Seminole Framingham Heart Study, and has had... Uh, peer-reviewed research continuously funded by the National Institutes of Health for 10 years, and you currently serve as the principal investigator on eight NIH U01 or R01 grants. What's an R01 and a U01 grant? 
So an R01 grant is what's called an investigator-initiated grant. I have an idea. I put in a grant. They decide whether or not to fund me. A U01 is an institute-initiated in grant where the National Institute on Aging decides they want to do research into an area. They go out and invite some investigators and give them money and say, let's work together or you work under with our supervision and um, do the research that we think is important. So they're both sort of complementary. And you have, uh, as I note in your resume, lectured extensively nationally and internationally on Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and the genetics of stroke and vascular brain surgery. You have just about done it all. So, so why did you come to San Antonio? Because I think it's the next frontier. Um, there was a wonderful opportunity, thanks to the vision of Mr. Glenn Biggs. I did not have the opportunity to meet him. I have met his widow, Anne and the whole family who are very invested. Mr. Biggs was a um, prominent business and uh, philanthropic leader, including being on the development board of UTHSA and a personal friend and mentor of many prominent San Antonians, including Bill Henrich, who's the current president. And then he developed Alzheimer's in 2013 and found that it was hard even for him to get good care. He came to the president and said, maybe we should build such an institute in UTHSA. And uh, over $50 million was raised um, Unfortunately, he died in 2015, could not personally benefit, but our hope is to set up a really comprehensive center. The sort of vision and passion and collaborativeness and commitment that I found in the city of San Antonio, as well as at the center, um, inspired me to make the move. Another big important reason is that Hispanics are the fastest growing community. Texas has two out of five Texans has Hispanic genetic ancestry, and we believe there's about a 40 to 50 percent higher risk of developing Alzheimer's among Hispanics. But this group is really very poorly studied and poorly represented in Alzheimer clinical trials. You'd expect that about one in five person in a trial would be Hispanic. It's actually closer to one in 100. So I believe this is a physically as well as in terms of intellectual commitment, a great place to study and help accelerate a cure. Also, there was already a Barshop Institute, which is doing important research on aging, and aging is the number one risk factor for Alzheimer's. There are many Alzheimer's basic science researchers at this center, so there was an opportunity to bring together excellent clinical care, clinical research with this biological research. There's also been a San Antonio heart study going on since the 80s. And so bringing the sort of population perspective by studying these people's brains, um, this it seems like to be the right place at the right time. I feel very fortunate to be here and look forward to I think the big things we can do together over the next 10 years. Well, I'm, I'm sitting here feeling also fortunate. Um, I have the pleasure of serving on the uh, community advisory board for the bar shop 
Institute. And I also, my first job, I worked directly for Sam Bar Shop. So it's oh. it's been wonderful to go from in my 20s working directly for him, uh, which was a wonderful experience, uh, to knowing his legacy is, you know, the Institute on Aging. And then we have Dr. Shishadri join us here in San Antonio. Uh, so we're, we're very fortunate uh, here in South Texas, but it's good for the whole, it's good for everyone, it's good for the country to have this interest in Alzheimer's. Absolutely. I think the answers we find here will apply to Texas broadly and to the country and the world. I had the pleasure last week of meeting Ann Barshop with Ann Biggs, and clearly the Barshop Institute, you know, this was a vision with not just financial support, but his involvement that I'm learning of, um, you know, where he talked to researchers, understand what was going on. The strength of the bar shop was clearly something that helped attract me here. Well, let me remind folks who may have just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, and we're talking with Dr. Suda Shishadre, who is at the UT Health San Antonio Glenn Biggs Institute uh, for Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative diseases. Well, Dr. Shishadri, there was an article this week in the Washington Post that talked about myths of Alzheimer's. And I was wondering if you um, would kind of share in your work, you know, what are our misconceptions about Alzheimer's? Maybe not specific to that um, study, but what do you find we, we get it wrong? Right. I think many people struggle with understanding the terms dementia and Alzheimer's, um, because uh, as well as in understanding when is there a line between normal forgetting with growing older versus a dementia or an Alzheimer that's a harbinger of something progressing rapidly and resulting in uh, you know, the way we think of dementia, where people lose memories that are important to them and lose the ability to function in ways that they want to because of um, difficulties with their thinking and with their behavior. So that's what I just told you is sort of the definition of dementia. And Alzheimer's is, as we understand it today, the most important underlying pathology in the brain, the most important abnormal process in the brain that brings on clinical dementia. So most people with dementia have some Alzheimer's, by no means everyone with dementia. Um, So um, physicians may hesitate to use the word Alzheimer's, partly because diagnosing Alzheimer's in life While you can diagnose that 90% based on the clinical picture and some simple tests of the blood and maybe a brain CT scan, to diagnose with 100% certainty often requires looking at the tissue of the brain either with some um, more complicated tests like getting a sample of their spinal fluid or getting what's called a PET scan or genetic testing or if the person dies, looking at their brain. So for these reasons, people are often, um, and also because it is a hard diagnosis for the physician to convey as well as the family to receive, um, they are told, 
oh, this is something that might be a dementia. We don't worry about it. Come back again in a year. And that leaves people in limbo, not able to access the services that a clear diagnosis could give them, not able to plan and prepare and perhaps enter clinical trials that could help them. So that, I think, is the number one misconception. I would like people to know that dementia is not normal aging, that um, it is a difficulty that's severe enough to interfere with the way the person wants to live. And Alzheimer's is the number one, but not the main cause, not the only cause of dementia. Also, that even what we call usual Alzheimer's is not just because of one pathology. People often know or have heard about amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles, but often a given person may have many things contributing, and some of these things may be treatable, like a high blood pressure or strokes. Finally, people often base their um, expectation of how the disease will progress based on one or two persons they may have personal knowledge of. But the course varies a lot between one patient and another. And so it's important to discuss with their physician. And often it might be important to see an expert who can give them, have a better discussion with them about the likely course and challenges in this particular patient um, or loved one. Well, you know, that it's really important what you said, and it's sort of new thinking that Alzheimer's is not just this monolithic disease. There's one way into it, and, and everybody gets it the same way. We're going to take a short break here, but when we come back, um, let's talk a little bit about the work that you've done recently, uh, identifying some new biomarkers on the risk of dementia, which I know all of us who have a loved one with dementia are afraid we're going to come down with it. Uh, and we can talk about that. But we're going to go for a short break and we'll be back on Caregiver SOS on air here at 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zernail and we're talking with Dr. Sudha Shishadre who is at the UT Health San Antonio Science Center at the Glenn Biggs Institute for Alzheimer's. And we're talking about uh, ways in which Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia can be diagnosed. And Carol's going to ask uh, Dr. Shishadri in a moment about uh, her study looking at biomarkers from blood tests taken on folks who ultimately developed dementia, but the blood was drawn many years before that. But before we do that, uh, Carol has an important question because she and I, ever since we heard this story, have been doing something that she will describe. So, so Dr. Shashadri, we have heard of the peanut butter test for Alzheimer's, and it was in the Washington Post article. So for the record, are you aware of any correlation between being able to smell peanut butter and Alzheimer's? Uh, let me put it this way. One of the earliest areas of the brain to get affected in Alzheimer's is the olfactory lobe. And so a range of smells, I don't believe there's any specificity to peanut butter, but losing or diminishing sense of smell is indeed an early marker of Alzheimer's and is one of the reasons why people may have changes in their appetite 
in Alzheimer's, often people lose weight many years even before they lose um, memories and continue to lose weight into the disease. And in some other kinds of dementia, like frontotemporal dementia, their appetite and eating habits might change. That's wonderful. Now I can tell my wife why I've been sniffing peanut butter every day. Well, talk a little bit about the research that you've done, because there was an announcement earlier in the spring um, identifying some new biomarkers of risk for future dementia. Sure. Be happy to. So one of the big challenges, of course, is can we identify who are the people who are going to get the disease for a couple of reasons. One is personal awareness and preparation, but also so that in clinical trials, we can focus on these people in prevention trials. And the accepted ways of testing for this are either taking uh, some spinal fluid and looking at beta amyloid and tau in the spinal fluid, or doing PET scans, which cost about $6,000, and expose people to radiation and take a couple of hours, and we can then look at whether they have amyloid and, more recently, whether they have tau in their brains. But that's not practical if you're talking about a population of, say, South Texas. So more pragmatic ways of screening often involve... um, things like asking people questions. But there you have the problem of what was their level of education, language. The goal would be to have simple markers that are based on, say, blood, saliva, um, where you could um, easily diagnose. My Our study that was published earlier this year looked at what are called metabolomics. These are the little molecules that are products of the various metabolic reactions happening in our blood. They are the point at which your genetic makeup as well as your exposure to environmental factors come together. So we showed certain metabolic markers that seem to change years before developing dementia. This is by no means an all or none test yet. So I can't do a metabolic test, metabolomic test, and say you are going to get the disease or you definitely will not get the disease. But these are markers that, along with others, can um, enhance genetic risk prediction. We are working towards simple risk predictors, and we invite people who are concerned to consult us and be part of research studies where we can refine these markers. How do we become a part of your research study? So we have, if you go to the Glenn Biggs website, there's um, clinical trials. You can sort of sign on for other trials. And we've just recently established an answering um, service and line where 24-7 people can sign on to be part of trials. There are also, you know, the Alzheimer's Association has a trials match, um, and you could sign on there as well. So don't think of trials only as something you do once you develop the disease and need to be on a drug trial. There are trials for preventing disease. There are trials for understanding the disease, and these are ongoing as well. So when you think about all the research that's done around the world on Alzheimer's, are you optimistic, cautiously optimistic? I mean, where are we? Um, At this point, we know there's no cure, but what does the future look like? 
I am definitely cautiously optimistic. Um, the number of things that have, I think, um, positioned us for a paradigm shift is the recognition by this government and governments all over the world for the need for increased funding for Alzheimer's research, at least 1% of the total $300 billion a year cost of care, um, as well as the increased need for research into care as well. Um, also, we have the tools now where we can look at the disease in a comprehensive way and identify all this novel biology, as well as the tools to convert this novel understanding through small molecular, you know, through um, high-throughput drug screening, drug discovery, phase one and two trials. I think in the next 10 years, we will be with Alzheimer's where we are today with HIV or multiple sclerosis. It will still be a bad disease, but one that we can better control and prevent. Now, I, I know that when we as a nation uh, years ago started talking about a cure for cancer, it became pretty clear that there isn't one cure. Is that true of Alzheimer's and dementia? Are we talking about multiple issues and problems in trying to find a cure? That's exactly right. And I think moving away from the um, concept of a cure to the concept of a number of preventive and therapeutic treatments tailored to each particular person's dementia and Alzheimer's is more likely to be successful. We've shown um, even in early onset gene-based Alzheimer's where, you know, you can tell that you have the gene that's going to get the disease. If we can refine the subgroup we are studying, instead of studying 10,000 people, you can study 1,000 people and identify a drug that works. And that approach is probably what's going to lead to an answer. Um, Bill Gates recently emphasized um, that he, he was personally going to put money as well into building a global um, sort of collaboration where our patients and patients in the UK and patients in Turkey are all going to be able to be studied at one time to identify the best people who might respond to a given drug. So I do think the next decade is an incredibly exciting time and glad to be a researcher and a clinician at this time. It's always heartbreaking talking to patients and their families, but I hope to have more to offer them in this decade. So in the you were talking about drugs, and it seems like, I know I've been in the field of gerontology for quite a while, the drugs haven't changed a lot in the last 25, 30 years. Um, do you anticipate that there will be, we won't, we'll have more drugs, uh, different drugs than that are good old standby? Nimenda. That are more effective, too. <laughs> yes, I do. It's been 15 years since the last drug was approved. Part of the reason was that in the past decade, the emphasis was very, to a very large extent, on drugs that lowered brain amyloid. And they did lower brain amyloid, but they did not improve thinking and behavior, which was the goal. So there has been a big shift towards studying a wider range of drugs, including um, drugs such as the mTOR inhibitor rapamycin developed in our own Barshop Institute. And so I think there are a number of promising drugs now in phase two uh, trials, as well as early phase three trials, looking at things like inflammation, oxidative stress, 
aging related um, and totally novel um, pathways that I think will translate into more effective drug cocktails. Well, until the drugs are developed, um, is there anything we should be doing um, as we get older to protect our brains? Is there anything that research has shown will help maybe prevent or reduce the risk of dementia? I, I know you co-authored a paper on preventing cognitive decline yes. and, and dementia. Uh, so let me start this so off. Most, Go yeah, ahead. The most promising interventions are controlling your blood pressure. Now, that particularly refers to controlling your blood pressure in your 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Thereafter, it gets, uh, you need to sort of hit that sweet spot where it's neither too low nor too high. Um, In addition, remaining physically active. Again, we don't know exactly the amount of physical activity, and you certainly don't want to overdo it so that somebody ends up falling. But any amount of physical activity, just um, even the number of steps per day seem to be beneficial in preserving brain function. And then staying cognitively and socially engaged, not computer games, but doing the sorts of things you've always loved doing, volunteering with your church, with your um, community, with your friends, perhaps taking um, position that's similar to the job you used to do, these seem to have benefits in preventing dementia. And finally, for people who have dementia, ways, often gifts such as artistic or poetry ability can emerge, and um, caring for the patient and the caregiver is a very important thing. And that's, again, one of the strong programs that the UTHSA School of Nursing is developing. I didn't hear you mention eat a lot of broccoli, which I do. Eating vegetables is good. I I don't believe there is scientific data emphasizing that it has to be broccoli. So for those who are not huge fans of broccoli, other green vegetables is fine, too. Uh, I've been downing a lot of broccoli, <laughs> I was going to say, I've been traveling with Ron recently, and he did, he's been eating a lot of broccoli. Uh, a lot of broccoli. <laughs> Well, that is good for you, and I'm glad you like the broccoli. Thank you. <laughs> well, um, how how did you get interested in Alzheimer's? I mean, it, it's such a large body of work, but was there anything specific in your past or in your work? What triggered the interest in Alzheimer's? Um, I grew up, uh, my mother became ill when I was five and passed away when I was 18 with a rather devastating neurological illness that hurt her ability to speak to me, to know who I was. Um, so I knew I wanted to go into neurology and help, um, you know, families uh, sort of keep that connection with their loved ones. Um, in the 90s, we just found amyloid precursor protein, APOE. That was the time I was finishing my neurology, and I traveled with my husband to uh, the U.S., um, and Alzheimer's research was in an interesting place in the U.S., and there was no such thing in India, so I went into a fellowship in Alzheimer's. And I'm glad I did. I am by nature an optimist, and at I believe that the cures, I believe then that the cures will happen in my lifetime, and I still do. Well, that that gives all of us a, a sense of hope, I think, looking forward. Well, we've got about a minute left. Now, if folks are interested, again, in volunteering or being part of 
uh, some of your studies. Uh, what's the best way to do that? For now, I would say give a call to 210-450-8437 and give us your name and contact number, and we'll get back to you and try and figure out what might be the most, um, you know, the best way for you to help us. There's also a link on the website. Right now, it's more like a financial donation link, but we would like to populate it with a number of options in by which people can volunteer their time, energy, talents, and resources. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us, and uh, if you don't mind, we'll check back with you periodically and see how things are going. We would love that. I would love that. Thank you for your support. Well, we're delighted you're here in San Antonio. And thanks for coming with us today on Caregiver SOS On Air. Dr. Suda Shashadri, we thank you. And up next, Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel, and moi, Ron Aaron. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. We are so pleased you are sticking with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. Take 10 follows each and every one of our programs. We welcome Dr. Jamie Heisman, a nationally known expert on caregiving and addictions. Carol Zerniel is here. I'm here, Ron Aaron. And uh, we bat around a topic for the next 10 minutes. Carol, you're going to surprise us. So I was looking at an article that was talking about how the news, <laughs> the news can depress you. And there's been so much, I mean, in the news, especially in the last few weeks, but it's really been just a, an onslaught, um, uh, depending on, it doesn't matter which side of the aisle you come down on, there's just lots of up and down news all the time. So, Jamie, I was thinking about the impact of, here you've got a caregiver, and in the world of caregiving, like let's say that's the the middle of the onion, and then layered around that is regular life, and then layered around that is what's going on in the United States and around the world, and what happens to a caregiver um, when everything around them becomes so turbulent the way it feels like things are these days? That's a great topic, Carol. It is the essence, if you will, and I'd like to say I would not like to say the frame to the picture of what total burnout is about is this backdrop and this drumbeat of news cycles upon news cycles upon news cycles that are depressing, anxiety-producing, and fear-mongering. And that is really the, the essence of what somebody, when they turn on the television set, actually hears, in addition to what has already hit them 
maybe unexpectedly or expectedly. Either way, it's, it's an absolute you know, difficult process. Uh, and so it compounds the, the, the burnout that a caregiver is already feeling from doing their day-to-day tasks with their loved one and trying to take care of themselves is this drumbeat. So it's not imaginary when we feel worn out and then we listen to the news and we feel even more worn out and helpless. That's not our imagination. No, it's actually reinforcing the self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, literally, if you're feeling depressed and you're feeling like you're going down a rabbit hole of negativity and you turn on the the news, uh, no matter what, like you said, part of your act, you're looking at, at, at health care, moral, ethical, things that really go far beyond the partisan piece, it really does, you know, fill the narrative that everything is wrong. You know, it's interesting, Dr. Jamie, I was talking to someone the other day, much younger than I am, trying to explain uh, during the 70s and Watergate, there was no 24-hour news. There was no cable news. You had to wait until the morning for the Washington Post to be dropped on your doorstep with the next day's story. Uh, and then you had to wait another 24 hours. Uh, and you didn't have that continuous drumbeat of negative news. No, you're so right, Ron. It's really the delivery system of how we get the news today. Uh, literally, the, the social media aspect of it, the the 24-7, uh, everybody is a reporter aspect of it. Uh, you know, this political burnout that we're feeling right now just is heaped on to this healthcare burnout that a caregiver is feeling on an ongoing basis. And this absolute 24-7 media cycle is really, I think, at blame here. I mean, let's face it, back in Watergate times, we used to get it in somewhat of a palatable fashion in the way you're describing. Well, you know, so... We often talk about caregivers feeling guilty, Um, and sometimes I'll think, well, I just want to turn off the news. I can't listen to this anymore. I turn it off, and then I feel guilty (laughs) because, you know, I'm turning off the news, but I feel like I'm – it makes me feel like I'm turning my back on important issues. Something may be happening, and I won't hear it. It might be happening, won't hear it, or it, it, it means I don't care about some of this turmoil that's going on in the world. You know, is is that logical to think that? Doctor? Well, two, now, two things. And first of all, to Ron's point, let's face it, this is exhausting. I mean, enough is enough. It's insane given the news cycle. It's insane getting the, the news that we're getting on a 24-7 basis. Your point about feeling guilty is, you've heard me say it often, Carol, uh, guilt is an exact correlation to self-esteem. And you know, sometimes when our guilt is high, our self-esteem is low, which means turning off the news is probably the best thing we can do if we don't want to feel guilty over a period of time. And that means that if we start taking care of ourselves, our mind, our body, our soul, and I'm guilty of this as well, doing a lot of government relations, is that turning off the news allows us to maybe assume or, or resume a journey into mindfulness and self-care. Now, if you just joined us, you're listening to Take 10 on Caregiver SOS on Air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel and Dr. Jamie Heisman on our Caregiver SOS on Air hotline. Uh, Dr. Jamie, not only is it 24-7, if you wake up in the middle of the night, and I must admit doing this occasionally, turning on CNN, it used to be they would have documentaries all night long. Not anymore. It's all the same drumbeat, so the story continues. And you're right, unless you turn it off and leave it off, you can't get away from it. 
No, we've got a news fatigue syndrome going on, I call it, and I do agree with you, Ron. Let's face it, these masterminds back in the, the network uh, land know exactly what to put on at 3 in the morning. They know what got rating for 3 in the afternoon, and they know how to repeat it for you and me who can't sleep at night. Um, literally, don't forget, too, that this kind of uh, world now of reality TV and ratings has actually hit our executive branch, too. Because our president is no stranger to what drives ratings and what drives news either. In fact, he's an expert at it. Well, you know, it's funny because I do try to explain to my son what it was like in the old days with Midnight, the color bar, the Star-Spangled Banner, and snow on the screen. Exactly. You know, the fact that a television station would go off the air, you know, you just get that stare on his face like, I have no idea what you mean by that. I remember when they didn't even (laughs) sign on till like nine in the morning. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wait for the TV to come on at six (laughs) on Saturdays because sometimes I would get up too early to watch cartoons cartoons, and the TV wasn't on yet. Wow. Wow, it's right. What a great story this is for our caregivers and, and, and their loved ones who are listening. Uh, that is a wonderful time, isn't it? That's a boundary time of network TV. That was an assault of things that, that would keep us afraid and, and fearful. Um, even this, the new TV, though, has entered the world of partisan politics, because I was reading an article how if you're left-wing, you can be more burned out. If you're right-wing, you can be more pumped up and motivated. And so even the, the news people and the newspapers are aware of the actual target markets in a, in a much different way than we were 30 years ago. So so if we're a caregiver, we're dealing with a chronic illness, a frail person that needs our attention, and our attention we're, is being com- – got competition there on the TV or on our phone, our smart device. Uh, the news is sucking us in. You know, what advice would you give those of us who are, are, are pulled in these two directions and both directions are stressing us out? Well, I would think that the first patient that we have is ourselves. We can only take our loved one as far as we've come ourselves. And so I would look at this newscast when you found yourself on CNN or Fox or, or PBS or whatever your, your news of the day is. I would see it as a gift. And as soon as you see the functional overload starting to happen, see it as a gift to turn off the television and to look up that journal that you have close to you and resume a life of healing, a life of self-help. Take care of your mind. Take care of your body. Take care of yourself. And use the television overload or even these triggers that today might, might really burn you out as a gift instead and, and take that trigger and, and move down the road in terms of health and healing. I read a lot of books and uh, read them on Kindle, which I have on my iPhone. And the trouble is I also have all the news alerts set so I can be in the middle of this incredible chapter of a book I'm reading. Oh, that's and horrible. And boom, the news alert pops up. Now I know. There's a, that's another reason why I read real books. They still make them. They yeah. do, and I buy them. And look how the world is all accustomed to getting at you at 3 in the morning there, Ron. Right. Perfectly. So it's up, to, it's up to us, obviously, to set the boundaries. Us as caregivers who are trying to take care of ourselves to be able to not have those pop-ups come out and to be able to take that, that book, like Carol says, that didn't have advertising and read it from there. It's up to us to avoid burnout by taking care of our own self. Got well, about 10 seconds left. Well, well, I love the idea. So my takeaway, thank you, Jamie, is setting the boundaries because too much really is too much. Try that on-off switch. 
Jamie, thank you. Carol Zernio, you thank bet. you. This is Take 10 on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. You hear us at 9.30 a.m. The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer.